All right, if you could take a seat, that would be great. We're going to get started. Uh, a big hello to those of you who are joining us online uh, tonight, who are probably watching this picture in picture with the Dodger game in one corner and my face in the other, but it's good to see you guys. Welcome. Hi, Nan. Good to see you guys. Um, you know, uh, probably about two months ago, I had a chance to do some traveling. I had a, a longer flight. A long enough flight that I had the chance to actually watch two movies while I was traveling. Uh, so the first movie I watched was Tenet. And uh, Tenet was a really easy one to choose because there's time travel in it. And so for me, that's all I needed to see. So I watched Tenet. I didn't understand it. Uh, but that's okay. It was great. The second movie that I ended up watching was a movie called Minari, which won five Academy Awards, five Oscars this year. And that's why I thought, well, I have to see it. Uh, there obviously must be something that is great about it. And it's the story about a Korean family who is trying to start a farm in middle America. There's very little time travel in this movie. Uh, one of the themes in the movie is the vastly different ways that three different generations in this family experience being American and also being Korean at the same time. On the far end of the spectrum, they have their grandmother who has been in the United States for one week. She doesn't speak any English. She has brought all of her Korean culture with her here into this home, and she's trying to turn this house into essentially a small little Korea, that in there it is all the parts of home, all the traditional foods, all the traditional customs. It is all still happening there in this house, so it is Korea away from Korea. That is what she wants. The parents are trying to find a way just to make the American dream work, struggling, trying to find their way, trying to find other people to connect with who are Korean in this culture, trying to find a way to make it work while their own marriage is in every way kind of falling apart. And then finally, you have their kids, who although they're Korean are also fully Americanized, who, who barely speak Korean at all, and in fact are struggling with grandma. And one of the famous lines from the movie is when the son, the, the grandson says, I don't like grandma. She smells like Korea. And so these are the tensions that are playing out in this family as they try to understand how are they Korean in America and what does it actually mean to be Korean when you're an immigrant. Uh, the story in a way reminded me of my own personal experience of, when, of my best friend in high school who is Japanese. His uh, dad was an executive for Nippon Airlines. Uh, his parents did not speak English at all. Not one word. Uh, in the house, Japanese was spoken. It was culturally Japanese. You took off your shoes. Rice was always served. There was a shrine in the corner there for uh, their ancestors, which is always having ancestors lit and food placed upon it. Now, meanwhile, my friend was driving a raised truck, listening to Pennywise, and surfing every day. Both Japanese, but in terms of what's happening in that house, vastly different understandings about what it meant to be Japanese and to live in this country at the same time. Now, if, if cultural differences, if those things can put a strain on a typical family as they try to understand what it means through the generations to be an immigrant, if that could happen in your home or in your house with your parents and with your grandparents, well, it makes sense why we might struggle to develop meaningful cross-cultural relationships at work, in relationships, in church, 
in sporting events. If we can't make it work in our own home with our own families, then it's going to be very difficult to cross those boundaries in relationships that are less significant. In the 1970s and the 1980s, there was a church, uh, there was a movement developed amongst churches about how you could grow your church. It was called, creatively, the church growth movement. And in this movement, the theory was, is that your church will grow fastest if you create it full of like-minded and like-cultured people. Now, uh, two examples of churches who did this really well was Saddleback and Mariners. And in fact, Saddleback was very intentional in how they did it. In fact, they created kind of an image about who the ideal person was that Saddleback was trying to reach. They called him Saddleback Sam. So you can tell like the 80s are just dripping off this photo, right? I mean, we have a pager on his, <laughs> on his uh, belt. He's got a dorky phone. In fact, most things about him are dorky. Uh, white, middle-aged, and they had just some things that they thought a typical, the ideal target audience was for Saddleback. He's well-educated, he likes his job, he likes where he lives. Health and fitness are high priorities for him. Let's be honest, they're, they're moderate priorities for him. Uh, He'd rather be in a large group than a small one. He's skeptical of organized religion. He is overextended in both time and money. He prefers the casual and informal over the formal. He is self-satisfied, even smug about his station in life, and he thinks he's enjoying life more now than he did five years ago. Look, all those things might be true, but just looking at where these churches are in Orange County, South Orange County, and looking at who's here on the screen, it's clear what they're trying to do. Their ideal target is white. And they built their churches that way, incredibly successfully so. These churches that drew people of the same sort of culture in Orange County, who were white as well, came flocking to these churches, and they grew in number. It was incredibly successful to grow numeric attendance. And yet, even though they grew numerically, there is a shallowness that I think can exist in churches that are trying to build their numbers this way, and it's because of this. The church is meant to be a multicultural place. It is in the very founding documents, it's in the very cornerstone of the church. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth, that you're going to go and make disciples of all nations out of Matthew 28, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So the idea of the church is that it was always going to be reaching cross-culturally. It was always going to be mission-based. It was always going to be moving out into areas of people who were not like them. And yet we still feel this pull towards people who are more like us. You know, when we began Coastline, Garrick and I were working on the values. Who are we going to be? What should we build this church upon? And one of the first things we wrote down was that we wanted to be a multicultural church. And that was on the list for about two weeks until one day I looked at Garrick and I said, Garrick, if we're going to be a multicultural church, how are we actually going to do this? Because, dude, we have four white guys on staff. If we're going to take this seriously, we've got to fire one of them and hire diversity. Like, I, if we put this on paper, if we actually go up there and say this, how could it have any integrity to it if it's not reflected in the leadership? And so Garrick and I looked at it and said, honestly, for Coastline, this is going to need to be something we're going to grow into but it's not something that we're going to be on day one. This is going to be something that we're going to have to build as we grow, that we're going to have to hire diversity, that we're going to have to create levels where diversity can get to, and yet we recognize that we're on a journey, but it's where we're headed. 
because it's how we believe that the church is actually founded. Today we're going to actually be going into the book of Acts, and we're going to see how this early church is struggling through all of the things that we've been talking about here. How do you be cross-culturally sensitive? How do you have that as part of an identity when it's such a challenge from the very early days? Uh, In the passage we're going to be looking at, we're looking at a church that is still only composed of Jews, but they come from vastly different cultures, and that is causing relational strain. They still have the same mission. They need to go to all of the nations and teach people about Jesus. But before they can do that, they, in a sense, have to become that themselves. That they're never going to reach their nations if there is bias and preference amongst their own body. That God has to do something first in them before he's going to do something through them. That's true for us today. That if we're going to live into the cross-cultural mission that Jesus has given us and that he has founded his church upon, then you and I need to have God do something in us before he can do something through us. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, would you turn there and would you stand with me? I'm going to read the text for us today. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days... When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows, they're being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all of the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And we're going to turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal, it pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. Let me pray. Lord, um, it's always funny, Lord, when something is put on a preaching schedule, um, and it's put out there weeks out, and yet when we finally get to it, we find it kind of hitting um, pressure points of what's already happening in the world around us. God, to talk about race, to talk about culture these days, is a minefield. It is so hard to do it well. And I think, quite honestly, God, we have been discipled more by the news than we have by your word on this. We come in with fears. We come in with concerns. We come in with agendas. And yet, Lord, today we're going to study your word. And Lord, we ask that it would pierce all of those things, that it would get in past our defenses or perhaps what we fear or perhaps what we're afraid of, that, Lord, it would sneak in past those things and that, God, we would hear from you today and that, Lord, your spirit would speak. Help me be true to the text. Uh, My words are meaningless if they are not. So help me be true to the text and to do your word justice. And Lord, we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So I'm going to do a a brief amount of history so you could understand this. Uh, And that's just what I do all the time. We're just going to nerd out for a moment. It's fun to do. Uh, So... A lot of you know this, but in 608, uh, Israel, the nation, this is 608 BC, it is defeated by the Babylonian Empire. 
when the Babylonian Empire defeats Israel, their strategy is to wipe out the Jewish culture by taking the best and the brightest and deporting them back over to Babylon, where they're going to put in service of the empire. They are given new names, they're given new identities, they're given new roles, and their whole idea is that if they come and serve the Babylonian people, the Babylonian government, then over time they will essentially become Babylonian, and they will come and serve us, and, and that happens for a lot of them. They're in Babylon for 70 years until eventually the Persians release them and allow them to go back to Israel. But here's an interesting thing that happens. Not everybody who is deported to Babylon decides to actually go back to Israel. Some decide to stay. Now, those who go back to Israel, they decide to grab a hold of their Jewish culture again and take it more seriously than ever before. This is when the Pharisees start to rise up. These are people who are going to be hyper-Jewish. They're going to follow the Torah relentlessly. They're going to follow all the customs, all of the Old Testament law, with the hope that if they can hold back to all of their Jewishness and all of their culture and all of the Torah, well, then maybe God will bless them again. It is a response to having lost their culture in Babylon that the Pharisees come along and, and, and do a good thing, largely. Now, for those who remain in Babylon, they go through a completely different journey. Their life looks completely different. Eventually, Babylon is defeated by the Persians, and then the Persians are defeated by Alexander the Great, who is from Greece. Now, when Alexander the Great comes and defeats them, they begin to take on Greek culture. They call this being Hellenized. So their whole world, they lose their, their Jewishness originally to Babylon and then to Persia, but eventually they become Greek and how they think about everything. Now they're still Jewish, but culturally you now have a break in the family tree of Israel so that they are Jewish by, culture, Jewish by race, but some are Hebraic, is what we're going to use the word Hebrew, in culture, while others are Hellenized. They have become Greek in culture. This is a huge difference in attention amongst the Jewish people. It's, it's different in a few key ways. The Hebraic Jews, they speak Aramaic. That is their spoken language. The Hellenized Jews, they speak Greek. They dress differently. The Jewish people are going to wear the phylacteries with the Torah on their forehead. They're going to wear prayer shawls and have the long kind of Jewish beards. They're going to be distinctively Jewish in every way. The Greek Jews probably don't even have beards, are wearing togas, and they are speaking Greek. Uh, they think differently. The Jews are formed by the rabbis, where these Hellenized, uh, Hellenized Jews are formed more by Plato, Aristotle, the Greek philosophers. Uh, the Hebraic Jews largely live in Jerusalem, where the Hellenized Jews are scattered all kind of out throughout the Mediterranean. Um, these two groups look down on each other. There's tension. There's not racism because they're of the same race, but culturally, they look at each other and they don't really understand why the other is the way that they are. And yet we have these festivals that happen in, in Jerusalem where these big mixtures of Jews come back together. They're all intermixed, and they kind of connect in this moment. Now, it's there at Pentecost where suddenly there's a huge moment of salvation for this mixed group of Jews. Remember, it says that they heard a sermon given by the apostles in their native language. Sometimes we hear that and we think it's a group of foreigners. No, they're all Jews, but they come from different cultures because they've been scattered and conquered and influenced. 
And on that day, they become saved. And these different Jews from different cultures are thrown into a church where now they have to work out all of their cultural differences, even though they're of the same race. That is the tension that we find. Now, in this instance, the tension comes to boil, and the issue is over feeding the widows. Um, They had a tradition in uh, ancient Israel at this time where every week the, the priests would go around to every home and they would knock on your door and they would show up with a basket and they would take an offering for the poor. Imagine that instead of us passing a basket aisle to aisle to aisle, there's a doorbell and there I am standing there with a basket going, it's time for your offering. An incredibly intense moment, right? Like, because now you're going to give out a guilt or obligation. You don't want to be embarrassed by me. I'm going to look at your offering and go, really? This is the situation that they're in. Now, Garrick taught last week on generosity where it says that with the, in the early church that the people brought their offerings and they laid it at the apostles' feet. So there's still an offering that's being taken for the poor, but in the Christian church, it's not an obligation door-to-door. They're bringing in their offerings, and they're giving it to the apostles to handle because they have a heart for the marginalized. They have a heart for the people who need it, and this money would have gone to help those who were, in a sense, had less, which was largely widows and orphans in the ancient world. If you were a widow, you had very little ability to kind of care for yourself. You needed to live kind of on the dependence of the the temple or upon that of the church. That's the history, okay? That is what's happening. Now, the church is growing fast. And it's growing so fast with people, like they say, like 3,000 people becoming saved in a day. When you have that amount of people suddenly flooding into the church, this system of coming and bringing money and giving it to the apostles and them using it to feed people, it breaks down. That's just honestly what happens. It breaks down. They become overwhelmed. There are too many hungry people. There are too many widows. There aren't enough hands. They're struggling to meet the needs that they have. And when they've struggled to meet the needs and when they're stressed by it, what ends up happening is they begin to revert back to who they were before Jesus instead of who they are now. They lose their own missions. They lose their own values. And they begin to treat people based on who they identify with and those who are like them. Specifically, The Hebraic Jews, they're in charge of giving out the food, and so they begin to give it out to the Hebrew widows. It said it first and foremost before they give it out to the Hellenized widows. And so you have Hellenized widows going hungry while Hebrew widows are getting food. Now, in the passage, it says that the people, they begin to get upset. Specifically, the the word in Greek that they use is they become gogismas, which is, means that they begin to grumble and complain, and they do so loudly. It's the same word that's used to describe Israel when they're out in the wilderness, when they became frustrated with Moses. So the people are upset, they're frustrated, they feel like they're being taken advantage of, and they don't believe that the apostles are doing enough about it. So the church is having its first conflict. Up until this point, we've only seen that they had everything in common, and they shared and loved one another, and they were blessed, and everybody loved them. Now it's falling apart, and it's because they're growing too fast, their systems are broken, and they're reverting back to who they were before Jesus. Now, 20 years ago, this story, if I would have read it, it probably would have surprised me. 
because I would have thought, this is a first-generation church. They have just seen the Holy Spirit descend upon them. They're seeing God heal people and break them out of prison. They have all of the apostles there, the 11 remaining. They have the 11 apostles there still with them. They have every reason to succeed. How on earth could they get divided over culture and race? There's no way that could happen for them. After being in ministry for a long time, I'm no longer surprised that good people, even godly people, can still sometimes be divided over race and culture and bias and prejudice, that it happens still even in the church. Really, sin, I believe completely that we are totally corrupted by sin, meaning that every part of ourselves is touched by sin at some point, which means the way that you think about money is touched by sin, the way you think about gender is touched by sin, the way you think about sex is touched by sin, and even the way you think about race, it is influenced by sin as well. We are totally depraved. Every part of us has been affected by sin. That is gonna, of course, come through in the ways that that we relate to people cross-culturally and across race. I can remember, and I've used this example in the past, when I was the high school pastor at Rolling Hills, I was the high school pastor when uh, Peninsula and PV broke up into two schools. And I could remember in that moment the white flight that happened from Peninsula to PV, leaving Peninsula as being a school with incredible diversity, but PV High being almost exclusively white. And watching that happen. I could remember seeing minority candidates kept out of church leadership because church leadership was afraid that they might come with an agenda, that they might be one of those who would come and make things complicated, and we didn't want to keep things complicated. We want to keep them efficient. So I know you see the diversity candidate as a strength, but maybe it's not a strength. Maybe that's actually a weakness in them. I've seen people be called theologically liberal because they have hearts for justice, hearts for biblical racial reconciliation. I can still remember, this is just like weeks ago, that we had congregants who wanted to raise funds for Kyle Rittenhouse after he went out and took an assault rifle and shot because this is the sort of thing that we need to stand against as a church. I mean, just because we're Christians doesn't mean that prejudice and bias and yes, even racism still lives in and amongst us. And we're just not willing to face it and look at it. How does that happen? How can we be a Christian people and still have that kind of sin living in amongst us? I think part of it is that the idea of racism and bias and prejudice is so taboo that we are unwilling to even consider that we could actually have that in our hearts. Meaning that is so rejected, we've been taught it's so wrong, that we're never actually willing to look hard enough at ourselves to see if it's actually there. We just assume that, of course that's not us, when it probably is. When there's levels of racism and bias and prejudice that exist in us, and since we won't look, since we won't invite God to search our hearts, we just never see it. It's never exposed, and we just keep on living our lives, never realizing that it could be us. You know, this, uh, this last week, John Gruden, who is the head football, or was the head football coach of the Raiders, uh, and had been before that a prominent broadcaster, influential, had done, I think, uh, the Sunday night games or the Monday night games, As powerful of a figure in the NFL as you can get, he had to resign his position leading the Raiders because emails came out that were horribly racist. He called uh, the uh, the man's an African-American, I don't remember his name. He was the head of the NFL Players Association. He said that this person 
had lips as thick as radial tires. Now, now here's the thing. John Gruden has worked with black players and black coaches his entire life. He is probably deeply friends with them as an invested in them. They probably eat in his home. They would probably, many of them would defend them. Is he racist? Who knows? How do you actually put a definition to that when he is, has these relationships that are meaningful and significant and yet also has opinions like this? So is he racist? I don't know. But is there bias and prejudice in his heart at some level against black people? Certainly. And where does one thing begin and the other end? You and I don't know. But I'm sure he could never even consider the fact that he might be prejudiced or biased or racist because of his relationships. But if he'd ever stopped and really invited God to search his heart, he might not be where he is today. Sin touches every part of our lives. And that means for all of us, in the ways that we interact with other races and cultures, there is something that we need to own and repent of. I really believe that. Because I really believe in total depravity. I really believe that we are more sinful than we think. And that our unwillingness to ask God to search us means that these kinds of biases exist and they foment and they grow in our hearts because we've just assumed that that can't possibly be us. And this includes me. I grew up on the docks uh, of Kings Harbor. I worked there for 10 years uh, running the fuel docks. If you had a boat that needed gas, I probably pumped it for you. Um, It was an intensely male uh, work environment. It was an intensely blue-collar environment. Uh, Most of the people that I worked with were uh, veterans of some war. It was an incredibly profane environment. And there is every joke that could be told about every culture or every race, I heard it all, and they all still live inside my head. And there are still moments when I come across cross-cultural difference, when I experience frustration, when I experience the cultural gap, I'll still hear those things in my head. They're still there. And it's in those moments when suddenly I recognize that those same jokes, those same scripts are still there, that it's in that moment that I've got to repent to God and say, there it is again. This isn't of you. God, this intentionally and directly works against the sort of church that you want to build. This keeps me from being able to live out the mission of God that you have to have us go to all the nations and cross all the cultural boundaries with your message. God, you have to come and pull this thing out by the roots again. And I don't think I'll ever be done with it because I think the way this sin works is as soon as I think I'm done with it, I find that the roots go a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. And he's got to come and do that work again and again. I think that's what we're invited to do. The apostles are being accused of treating the Hellenist widows with bias. It's an incredibly intense accusation. And if you think about it for a moment, how would you respond? If someone came to you and said, you're treating the Hispanics and coastline differently than you're treating the whites, what would you say? What if they came and said to you, we think that you show actually bias against the Asians in this community than you are to the whites? I mean, if you heard that, That's an incredibly challenging statement. And if you heard it, there's a pretty good chance that on some level you'd become defensive. Uh, You might ask for the benefit of the doubt. Hey, I'm doing my best here. Like, I am honestly trying. Can you just trust me? Or we might match the intensity of the accusation with intensity of our own. Well, you try to do it. You try to feed 200 widows. You try to do it perfectly. You want to do it? Step in. We could match that intensity with intensity of our own. Or we could play the victim. 
of saying, you know, I'm working hard. I don't think I deserve this. I don't think these accusations are particularly fair. Or we could demand an audit. Show me the data. Prove your point. Prove that I'm showing bias against these widows, against the other ones. Prove it. If you can show me, then I'll admit it. Or we might actually harden ourselves and say, you know what? We're trying to feed these people. And let's be honest, the Helena's widows, they're not even from around here. We have enough widows that are from here in Jerusalem. They aren't even from around here. They live in other areas. If they just go home, maybe their own families could care for them. All of these options are on the table here for the apostles. They can respond in these ways, and certainly you and I have responded in these ways when we've been criticized in the past. We easily become defensive. But a defensive response, what usually ends up happening is it silences the conflict. It doesn't make it go away, though. People go, whoa. That was intense. And so they just shut down. They just go quiet, but it just goes underground and it just becomes more deadly. Meeting an accusation with defensiveness never makes it better. You can't out yell a person's concern. And this is true of biblical leadership and non-biblical secular leadership. If you meet an accusation with defensiveness, that's just bad leadership across the board. It doesn't go well. A better response than defensiveness is, is empathy. In empathy, you try to put yourself in someone else's shoes. You try to say, what would it feel like if I saw that my friends who are Hellenists, who are widows as well, if they weren't getting hungry, what would that feel like? How would I process that? How would I understand that? You try to put yourself into someone else's position and to understand their perspective and then to feel what they feel. That is what empathy means. Is I'm trying to feel what you might feel. It certainly is a much better response than defensiveness. And yet it doesn't go far enough. Because in the end, if the only thing I allow myself to do is to understand your perspective, if the only thing that I do is to feel what you feel, but if I never meet it with action, well, then it just feels like you're placating me. It just feels like you're going halfway. You understand my situation enough to care, but not enough to do. Empathy is all about the heart, but there's no action involved with it. And so empathy is good, but it's not ultimately the best. We don't want to be defensive, and it's good to be empathetic, but ultimately what Scripture calls us to do is to do even more than that. It is to be compassionate. And compassion is empathy in action. I feel what you feel. I understand I try to walk in your shoes. And then I begin to do something about it to resolve your pain and to help you grow or pass it. Compassion is when we get involved with people who suffer or with hurt. And compassion is just the heart of Jesus towards us, towards you. Matthew 9.36 says this. When he saw the crowds... When Jesus saw the crowds of hurting people who were trying to get to him and who couldn't, who were sick and were looking to be healed, people who were demon-possessed and wanted to cast out, when Jesus saw the people, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He felt for them and then he did something about it. He fed them, he healed them, he cast out their demons and went to a cross to die for them. That is the response that Jesus always has towards us, and it's what he wants for us to do. 1 John 3, 18 says this. Dear children, let us not love with words or with a tongue, but with actions and in truth. Compassion is love in action, and it is the very center of the gospel message. Our world that you and I live and work in, it is saturated 
in pride, in self-righteousness, and in defensiveness. But it is completely dehydrated of true love, compassion, and care. The apostles, they hear the complaint of these widows. They feel the complaint emotionally, and then they respond with compassion. We see this here in the text. The disciples know that there's a problem, that something has to be done to solve it, but they also know that they're not the ones to solve it. He says that their job is to pray and preach. And so what needs to be done is a new level of leadership needs to be raised up. Their criteria about who should be the ones to come and lead this new ministry to care for the widows, it is fascinating. We would expect to see the sort of criteria that you would need from this is somebody who uh, has been a successful CEO. Somebody maybe who has ran a restaurant. Someone who has worked with supply chain. Somebody who's worked with a lot of volunteers or a lot of employees and can bring organization and structure where that's currently lacking. That would be the sort of person I would look for. They don't care at all about that. There's two criteria that they're looking for in the sort of people who are going to become the new wave of leaders in the church. The first, that this person must be wise. They're looking for biblical wisdom. Not wisdom of food, not wisdom in skill set, but this sort of wisdom that comes from a deep knowledge of the Lord. And the ability of bringing that knowledge of the Lord into everyday action. Specifically, they have a deep reverence for the Lord. And everything in their life is meant to show God a love and appreciation and a sense of his holiness and of his goodness. Proverbs 9.10, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. These are men who are godly and love the Lord and live their lives with a healthy and holy respect of him. That is who they're looking for. People who are desperately trying to please God. The second thing that they're looking for is that these are people who must be full of the Spirit, the text says. That means that in and out of their lives there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And he's saying these should be evident in the community. That if you want to know what's going to make a good leader, it is a person who is so in touch with the Spirit that their lives are naturally producing the fruit that comes from deeply knowing him. Those are the only two criteria they have. Wisdom and the fruit of the Spirit. And so it says in the text that they choose seven men to lead. Here is what is fascinating in the text that you probably can't recognize without having somebody pointed out to you. I need someone to point it out to me. All seven names are listed here. Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Every one of them is a Greek name. They are from the Hellenistic Jewish side. These are the people who feel like they're being marginalized and being looked past. They say, who is going to be the one who's going to lead this endeavor? It's going to be those who care the most about it. Those who are the most in touch with the pain of what's going on. Those who feel the most unseen. They're going to be the ones who are going to lead it. Now this feels risky, right? We would think, I would think, the way I would do it, I was like, I'm going to get four Hebraic Jews, I'm going to get four Hellenist Jews, you're going to work together, and this is never going to happen again. We would think that that would be the solution because seven Hebraic Jews got us into this problem, and certainly seven Hellenist Jews might just perpetuate the problem. They might just make the whole thing happen the other way, right? That would be my natural concern, except for one thing. The criteria is wisdom 
and the fruit of the Spirit evident in their lives. And if they have the wisdom of God and if they're trying to please him and if the fruit of the Spirit is present in their lives, then you don't have to worry about them shifting the roles and putting bias another way because they're living to please God and the fruit of his actions is evident everywhere in their life. And they would never do that. It says something great here in verse five. This proposal, when they bring it, it pleased the whole group. When was the last time you made a decision that it pleased everybody? It's a sign, and not only that, it's not like they made an easy decision or a balanced decision. But when people saw it, they were pleased because what they saw was godly leadership. What they saw in the apostles was men who were focused on the spirit and had the wisdom of God. And since they saw it there and their souls were dehydrated from that kind of leadership, they were praising God when they finally saw it. And the result of it is incredible. We see here that the word of God spreads. This is great. It means that there was a moment where the word of God stopped spreading. There was a moment where they quit growing, and that is because there was unrepentant sin and unrealized sin in their own hearts and in their own church. And it wasn't until that was given to God that ultimately God was going to remove the block and the Spirit was going to flow again. You see, once they began to go and do this and repent of this, it's then that God began to move again. Churches who embody the mission of God to all the nations, they're going to grow. And churches who are always inviting God to search their hearts and to reveal their sin, they're going to grow. Churches that do not neglect the preaching of the word of God and of prayer, they're going to grow. Churches that reject defensiveness but embrace compassion, they're going to grow. Churches that give away power instead of protecting it, they grow. And churches who value godliness and wisdom over success, they're going to grow. And the reason why they're going to grow is because they are now in the kingdom instead of living like the world. And that's what happens. They begin to grow. And more than that, the people become prepared for the next step because where we're going to end up, we're now in Acts 6. When we hit Acts 8, just two chapters away, the global mission of the church begins. And the person who's going to lead it is actually Philip, who is listed here in this list of one of the seven men who's overseeing the distribution of food. They are ready to go to the nations because God has done something in them. And friends, the growth that we long for, or the mission that we have, or the depth that we want to have, the wisdom that we want to have here, is going to happen as you and I continuously invite God to search me, to reveal my sin to me, and then repent of it, Again and again and again. God wants to do something first in us before he's going to do something through us. The question is whether or not we're going to let him actually do that. You know, we're going to actually have a time of worship. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. Before we actually start, I'm going to put some questions on the side screen. Just for you to kind of think through. There might be too many up here. You might need to grab one or two. But just a chance for us to reflect and to ask God, where am I? Am I seeing myself clearly? I'm also going to uh, ask the prayer team to go to the sides. We always have our prayer team here at every service. Uh, they would love to pray for you. Uh, and this is about whether or not your issues are about something related to the service or something totally different. We are all needy. None of us have our acts together. And sometimes we just need help finding our way. And so prayer team, please go to the sides. If you, in the middle of prayer, God puts something on your heart or you feel overwhelmed, please go see them. These are good and godly people. Let me pray. Lord, Lord, I, I just thank you that we live in a community that is so diverse as the South Bay. It is such an incredible place to have, be a home 
And yet, Lord, I just think that being as multicultural as we are is harder than sometimes we think. And that, God, sometimes we revert back into finding people who are like us rather than embracing the true construction of the church that you've set up. Lord, search us. Teach us. Lord, may this be a place where every culture can come and say, I feel at home there. And Lord, we ask that you grow us in the cultural expression and the cultural identity of Coastline, that, Lord, you would build up leadership and bring out a new staff and bring in people into every role that reflect the beauty of your kingdom and the nations that you've brought here to the South Bay. We love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.